Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. And what I'd like to do as, I, as we start is just share a little bit about my mom. Uh, she hasn't been here to Tulsa since we moved quite yet, just because of some surgeries and COVID and all that stuff. But um, I do want to share just a little bit about her because of the uh, role that she's played in my life and uh, the influence that she's had. My mom was born in 1947. I'm the youngest of four kids. Um, and she was, she was actually born into, in Marshfield, Wisconsin, it was, uh, for lack of a better word, it was a very rough family. Uh, she was very poor when she grew up. And um, her, her, let's see, this would have been great-grandfather uh, was the town drunk in Marshfield. And uh, just couldn't keep a job didn't really have anything that was grounding him, dis- the self-discipline that it would take just to be a, a person of responsibility, struggled with addictions, didn't know it, didn't have the self-awareness to fight against those uh, addictions, and didn't know the Lord either. And so he followed suit by uh, passing that tradition, <laughs> that um, just those, those struggles that he had down to his son, which was my grandfather, Grandpa Bob, and, and my mom's dad. And, and he was the same way. He was a mailman, uh, really struggled with alcoholism his entire life. Uh, the story that we always heard growing up was um, on Christmas Eve. At that time, when they grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, they don't have mail, these things called mailboxes. They didn't, they didn't have that. You had a mail slot in the front of your door, perhaps, or maybe like a box that hung actually on the porch where you lift it up and put the mail in, took the, the outgoing mail out, and on Christmas Eve, my mom can't remember a year that her dad made it home sober. Um, people would just invite him into the house, hey, Bob, come on in, Merry Christmas, have a drink. And, and every year, it was a police officer or somebody on the mail, mail route would help him get back home. And she made a conscious decision, it's really, really amazing, um, have you heard this? There's a Ezekiel 18. There's a, a proverb that said to the nation of Israel, and it goes something like this. It says, the fathers ate the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are on edge. And it's a, it's a proverb to say that Israel had this wrongful conclusion that because their fathers, their grandfathers struggled with certain sins, they would be held culpable for those. They would be responsible for the parent's sin. And Ezekiel, God through the prophet Ezekiel comes on the scene and he says, listen, you're responsible for you. You're not responsible for anybody else. You've got to make your decisions, you make your choices. And only you are going to have to answer to God individually for those things. And so he tried to annihilate this little proverb, but, but there was generational sin in my family that was deep. And it had gone on for years and years. My mom made a conscious decision that she was going to stop it. So she married this crazy guy from across town that went to the rival school, that nobody really liked him, uh, but she knew she didn't want to be part of that previous lifestyle anymore. And it was a hard, hard decisions that they went through, but I'm super thankful for her. My mom was the disciplinarian in the family. Um, 
boys, and you guys that are raised with boys, sometimes it gets a little bit rough at the house with moms, and, and we grew up in that time where I was just as stubborn and hard-headed as the rest of the kids were. I'll never forget, um, thankful for my mom uh, putting uh, dish soap on her finger and scrubbing my teeth with it when I said things that weren't supposed to be said out of my filthy mouth. And it's just, man, I look back at those times and I'm grateful for my mom, grateful for the time that she took to discipline me and to show me that she really did care and love me in that way. Her go-to weapon was the, the kitchen spoon, the wooden spoon. Have you guys ever had this, grew up with it in your house? There was a drawer in our house. I might have shared this story before with you. Oh, memories, got to love them. There's a drawer in our, our kitchen that was filled with all the wooden utensils, the stirring stuff, the big stuff. And man, she got to a point when we were five, six years old as boys, all she would have to do is go over and rattle that thing just a little bit. And we would straighten up, sit down, quiet down, like do whatever she's told us to do. I remember at, toward the end of the wooden spoon era, I call it, she was... Uh, I don't, even, I don't even know what I did. I probably said something I wasn't supposed to say, or me and my brother broke something in the house. I have no idea. I just remember she came after me like a bolt of lightning with this wooden spoon in her hand. And all I had time to do was like one of these things. <laughs> I really wasn't, I wasn't afraid that she was going to like hit me in the face. She never did that. Uh, but anywhere where flesh, flesh was showing was free game for the wooden spoon. And she took this crack, like, right on my calf. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. And in an instant, the wooden spoon broke in two pieces. And I looked up at my mom, and this little smile came over my face. <laughs> and the eyebrows raised up a little bit. What are you going to do now, Mom? And just as fast as she came after me the first time with the wooden spoon, she went back to that same kitchen drawer and got this wooden roller, this... <laughs> it's one of the last times that I got a reminder, as we call them in our family, spankings. It wasn't needed very much after that. Um, but I absolutely, absolutely love my mom, and so I'm so thankful for her today. There's a... Uh, there's no question in my mind without her prayers. Good grief. Uh, there's just no telling, no telling where I would be. So, how many of you have moms that are in the service today? Raise your hand. I want you just to lean over some point in time. If they're not sitting next to you, maybe they are. This is good. And just say, thank you, mom, for loving me enough to discipline me as a child. <laughs> Thank you enough for going to the furthest extent to get a hold of my heart, all right? Mother's Year. We're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 2. How am I going to make a Mother's Day sermon out of Babylonian sinfulness? We're going to, we're going to try to do it. Habakkuk chapter 2. As you're, as you're turning there, uh, let me pray this morning. Father in heaven, thank you again so much for uh, your love for us, your grace. God, thank you for your that you love us as a father and therefore willing to discipline us when we need it. It reassures us that you do care about us, Lord. We thank you that you've created this thing called the family unit. We thank you that you have provided for us 
um, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, moms, Lord, those of us who have had the blessing of, of just having a loving mother um, help this day to be a, a great blessing to them, a, a reassurance, just use us to, to be so thankful for the time, for the effort that they've all put into our lives. Father, we pray that as uh, we look into the text of Scripture now and, and take a few moments to look into your word, that you would convict us where we need conviction, you would encourage us where we need encouragement. Help us to be uh, better and stronger in our walk with you when we leave this room this morning, more so even than when we came into it. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2. I want you to look down at verse 4. That's where we're going to pick it up, verse 4 and 5. The prophet Habakkuk starts with a behold. That's a hine in Hebrew that's designed to gain your attention. Listen up. Whatever's happening in the context, I want you to pay special attention to what I'm about to say in this verse. Verse 4 really stands out from the rest of them. Here's what it says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own all peoples. I want to start, and I want to look down to verse 5 because it, it makes the context uh, a little bit easier. It's syntactically, it's a little bit easier to understand as we read the prophets. Remember in the book of Habakkuk, God has raised up this evil, wicked nation of the Babylonians to bring justice to the land of Israel. Justice not only to the land, but also to God's people. The leadership was unjust. There was rampant sin that was happening, and, and he had raised up this pagan nation to discipline Judah, to show him again that he did love and he did care about them. And Babylon was a ruthless nation. Verse 5 is a general description of their wickedness. You see a lot of third-person singular pronouns here, the he, his, him. Those are referring to Babylon as a nation collectively in a singular fashion. As a nation, this was a people who were addicted to wine. They were drunkards. They were being controlled by it. They were arrogant. Look at Proverbs chapter 23, 31, and 32. It's on the screen for you. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Wine may look really good in the glass, but it bites like a snake. Its poison is like that of a viper. The Babylonians were known for drinking, for their addictions. If you read in Daniel chapter 5, you'll, you'll see about Nebuchadnezzar's great feasts, his festivals, his parties that he threw. Historically, biblically, they're known for having this struggle or this, this tendency, at least in their history. And to be fair to Scripture, Drinking and enjoying a glass of wine is not a sin. It's actually, it's actually allowed. So what we need to do is make sure that we're reading everything contextually, holistically, according to what Scripture says. You'll have a really hard time with Jesus and his first miracle in Cana of Galilee if you say that to drink anything is a sin. Uh, to get drunk is certainly a sin. The Apostle Paul creates a, a clear line for us. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5. You got to remember this because 
we live in a culture that's been so shaped by the prohibition of the 20s and 30s. It was the noble experiment in America. We're sensitive in our culture to the dangers, irresponsibilities of people who don't drink responsibly. It's easy to get sucked into like a joyless legalism in Christianity and making it all about checking the boxes. I'm a good Christian because I don't drink. I'm a good Christian because I don't do this, I don't do that. Make Christianity into a checklist. But at its core, Christianity and the gospel is not about what you don't do as much as about who you believe. It's about what Jesus has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And freedom in Christ is what we have. We're called to use that generously, graciously, thoughtfully when considering other people and, and responsibly. It would be an error of epic proportions to create rules and laws where Scripture does not create rules and laws. And so I want to keep that on the forefront of our minds. But the warning, the warning remains here in Habakkuk chapter 2. The drunk nation of Babylon, they were as greedy as the grave. Death is never satisfied, just like the death that they brought on innocent and hopeless people. Death never takes a holiday for the Babylonians. They're this ancient kingdom that relentlessly and restlessly took over weaker peoples, overcame them just by sheer might, because they could. It reminds us of a, of a great quote from Augustine. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in God. The hearts of the Babylonian people were restless. The hearts of their king was rest, restless. The hearts of their military was restless. They wanted more and more and more, and they were never satisfied with what they had. They were not a content people at any stretch of the imagination. But I want to talk more about verse 4. This is a key verse, and it's written in such a way that really does grab our attention, especially when you read it in Hebrew. The translation is not easy. If you have ESV, something different, your text says a little something, something different than what this, this, what this says here because the translation is so difficult. Behold, his soul is puffed up at the beginning of verse 4. That's the only time that word puffed up is used as a verb in Hebrew, which is why it's such a difficult verb to translate across the major translations. ESV says puffed up. Swollen would be a good translation. When you look at the noun form of this verb in Hebrew, it's used of a mound that is swollen. A, a mound was literally a landscape that was swollen in one place. It's also used of hemorrhoids in the Bible. All right, so happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Behold, his soul is puffed up like a hemorrhoid. There you, there you go. Praise God. Uh, King James Version, his soul is lifted up. The Christian Standard Bible says his ego is inflated. New American Standard calls him the proud one, speaking of this wicked nation, but also speaking of anybody who's not included in the category of righteous at the end of the verse. At a very basic level, Habakkuk is, is providing a very strong contrast. There's the wicked at the beginning of the verse, there's the righteous at the end of the verse. At the end of verse 4, life and faith in God is emphasized by the righteous person. At the beginning of the verse, arrogance and pride is emphasized for the unrighteous. Let me ask a question here. Habakkuk knows now 
that this wicked nation of the Babylonians is about to overtake them. He's heard the word from God. He knows his plan. He gets a, he gets a view into exactly what's going to happen just years ahead of his time. And he reads this verse about pride being the main issue. This is, a, this is a nation, this is a people who oppressed, enslaved, took possessions that were not their own, ruthlessly killed and murdered innocent, helpless people. And the one description, the strongest description that we're supposed to pay the most attention to as we read this text is that his soul is prideful, his heart is, is puffed up. Why is pride the great sin that Habakkuk draws our attention to. I want to point out three things about pride. Number one, pride is essentially competitive. C.S. Lewis said this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more than the next person. Pride doesn't care if you're rich, if you're beautiful, or if you're smart. Pride only cares if you're richer, more beautiful, or more intelligent than the next person. It is essentially a vice of competition. A prideful person will steal your girlfriend, not because he cares and loves the girl, but, be, but because he wants to be stronger and prove himself better than you are. It's rooted in, in this attitude of, of a lofty competition. When I look at myself, I know I am better and stronger than you, and I've got a sick pleasure for having more than you have. We need to be very careful with our competitions and comparisons in the church, especially in the church. How is it that people can be so eaten up with pride and still claim to be very religious and seem very religious on the outside? I'm afraid in those instances, the truth of the matter is that they're worshiping another God, a false God, with a capital S that goes by the name of self. And they want everything and anything to revolve around them. Pride is uh, at the foundation of every other sin can be traced back to pride. It is essentially at its core, it is competitive. Number two, pride is rooted in a need for power and control. Power is what pride really enjoys. And again, as long as there is one man in the world who is powerful or or strong or significant, the prideful king Nebuchadnezzar will want to be more powerful, more significant, uh, more rich. Powerful people are always looking down on others. When you spend your time looking down on others, it's really hard to look up to somebody who is over you, a God who is greater than you. Number three, pride is the anti-God state of mind. And I want to I quote at length here from one of my favorite theologians because this is just such an important point for us to grasp. And, you know, hey, happy Mother's Day, moms. Don't be prideful, okay? This is, this is a, a note and a warning that needs to happen regularly with the strongest of Christians in this group. I encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's chapter 9, in mere Christianity. He calls it the great sin. And it's five or six pages on pride. I encourage you to read it on an annual basis as a reminder, as a gut check, not to elevate yourself higher than we need to elevate ourselves. Pride is, is subtle. Um, it can creep in so easily without us even knowing about it. 
Here's, uh, here's Lewis's thoughts, and this is a little bit longer, so just bear with me. He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, and at the very same time, I've very seldom met anyone who showed the slightest mercy to it in other people. There is no fault which makes man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride. It's the essential vice. The utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. This is a complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is this, is this sin that tells us that we are strong enough, good enough, capable enough to save ourselves. At the root of all pride is the, the sin of unbelief. It's the sin that sends people to hell at the end of their lives. It's a serious, serious thing, and even in the Christian life. There's a Puritan, Jonathan Owen, wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin in the Body, He's got a quote that goes something like this. Be busy about killing sin, or sin will be busy about killing you. And so here's what I want to say about pride. Be busy about killing pride, or pride will subtly, forcefully, noticeably be busy about killing you, killing your Christian life. How does it do it? How do we be busy about killing pride? Number one, Realize how easy and how often we slip into this vice. It rears its head on occasions when we don't think we're being prideful. We are, in fact, being prideful. If you don't think you're prideful, here's what that means. You're really prideful. What's amazing about Habakkuk is, is God is just ex- explaining more and more about th- these wicked Babylonian people, right? So in verse 1, the most content, or chapter one, excuse me, the most content you have in Habakkuk chapter one is describing the sin, wickedness, and evil of the Babylonian empire and the Babylonian people. When you go to chapter two, the most content that you have in chapter two is describing the wicked, sinful characteristics, the wicked people, the prideful people of the Babylonians. Right? And then we get this just, just this one short little verse Behold, as for the prideful man, his soul is puffed up within him, but the righteous man will live by his faith. And that statement makes everything else that Habakkuk just described about the wicked Babylonians stand out all the much more about this one single solitary righteous person. The righteous man in Habakkuk 2.4 is a diamond in the rough, They are a bright light on the dark and stormy coastland that is produced by a lighthouse. They stand out from a wicked, ruthless nation of the Babylonians. Be busy about killing pride, or pride will be busy about killing you. Number two, 
Sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Habakkuk is going to launch now into a, a taunt song. This is very poetic. When you read verses 6 all the way through 20, really, it's, its structure is extremely tight. This is a poetic song in the nation of Israel that Habakkuk gives as he relates the words of God to the Babylonian people, to other nations who are like Babylonian or Babylon. It's built around these five woe oracles. I want to just point these out to you. Uh, look down at verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Skip down to verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, sets his nest on high. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a house, a town, with bloodshed and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. The last woe, the final woe, is a little bit different. There's content, content that comes before it that is unlike the previous four. The last woe is, is found in verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. It's a, a judgment, a condemnation against idolatry, this uh, penetrating sin in the life of Israel, in the life of the heart of any worshiper. Built around these five woe oracles, and each of these five sections contains a threefold pattern. So you're going to see a verse in each section, an accusation against Babylon. The second verse after that is going to be a, a threat. Because you have done this, here's what's going to happen to you. There's a threat from the Lord. And then finally, there's a judgment or a condemnation. So you got uh, these three things, accusation, threat, judgment, accusation, threat, judgment, five times as you go through this very tightly structured taunt song for the wicked Babylonian, the ruthless nation. I just want to take a look at the first woe as we describe this, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up, okay? Look down at verse 6 again. Shall not all these take up their taunt song against him, against Babylon, scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. Not just Judah and Israel. Y'all are about to plunder Judah. There's going to be other nations that you've plundered before them. They're going to come back, and they're going to plunder you. This is a drastic and stark warning in the text. For the blood of man and the violence done to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them at the end of verse 8. The first woe against Babylon is a woe for extortion. Verse 6. Babylonians weren't just oppressing and taking from a weaker nation, they were heaping up the goods that they plundered. They were storing them for themselves, loading them with the goods from other people that they had no business in owning and ever gaining rightfully in their own way. Loads himself with pledges is a really interesting phrase, and it's, you got to dig into the culture at that time, ancient Near East to understand it. Ancient system of making loans was constantly known as uh, 
as making pledges. So if you owed a person money and you couldn't pay them back, you would have to give a pledge to that person. It was like our system of collateral, okay? You go to the bank, I will lend you this money, what are you gonna give me for collateral? How do I know that I can make up this money if you don't pay up in the future? A pledge was the same way. A pledge was for a loan, it was given as collateral, and it was something of value, especially in that culture. The Babylonians didn't care what it was, they didn't care who it belonged to, they didn't care if it was something that was for a loan, it didn't care if it was their own possession, they just took it. They rode into Judah and they took what wasn't theirs, and they oppressed these, these innocent and, uh, well, sinful, but weaker nation of Judah. Verse 7, these victimized nations, God says, are going to suddenly arise in revolt. Kind of get the a little Marxist flair here. You ever heard a quote about revenge? Uh, revenge is a meal best served cold kind of thing. Babylonians were going to experience some revenge from many, many nations who they just ran right through. And it was going to be devastating for them. Not too long after Babylonian Empire peaked, it was the Medo-Persians that came in, did to the Babylonians what they had done to every other nation before Judah, brought justice to the land. Remember the... Uh, the French Revolution, remember the Reign of Terror? Uh, Maximilian Robespierre, is that a name that's familiar? Robespierre was the uh, uh, famous French nobleman who wanted to make a, a scene of killing the French peasants. And so he had a device that was built in France at that time, something called a guillotine. Does you guys know this? Um, Maximilian Robespierre loved to take people that threatened his power, that threatened the power of the state, and he would make a, a humiliation, he'd make a scene out of their execution, bring them up to the town square where everybody could see them. People would purchase tickets to watch the execution at the guillotine by Robespierre. It wasn't too many years after that that the, uh, the French Revolution took place, and Robespierre was captured by those French people. And the same guillotine that he had set up in that same square as a public humiliation, he was put in the docks. And they executed him, just like he had executed everybody else. The word for debtors here, you look down in your text, will not your debtors suddenly arise, verse 7. It's literally biters. And that word for tremble in the context, that's not like a, a small shaking or a tremor of the hands. That's a violent trembling and shaking. That's what you use to describe an earthquake or a hurricane, perhaps even when you look at the, at the Hebrew text in the ancient Near East. Those who the Babylonians bit will bite back. Those who made them shake will make them tremble in fear. And eventually the victimized will make Babylon the victim because of their wicked and sinful evil desires. Verse 8 describes the boomerang effect of sin. This is when our sinful desires come back upon us, come back upon the Babylonians. Babylon was the plunderer. Soon, someone will plunder them. Babylon shed blood. Soon, their blood would be shed. They were violent. Someone's going to violently attack them. 
take all their possessions, march them away. Galatians 6, verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. A lesson that they were going to learn near in the future. I think there's a principle that we can take from this, though, as we, as we look at this text before we apply it. For all the, all the families, all the moms, all the dads that are here today, there is a, an honor and a blessing from earning a rightful living in life. When you earn a fair wage and you make an honest living, God is pleased with that. What he's not pleased with is extortion. He's not pleased with doing that in a sinful, evil way that honors yourself more than it honors him. Don't stoop to the level of extortion and make wealth through unjust practices. When power becomes your main tool to take advantage of others, woe to you. Woe to you. Your judgment will be swift. It's going to come in the same way. It's going to be in kind. Let's talk about just two points of application. Mother's Day. Number one. The righteous in verse 4, as they're described, are not perfect. They live according to their relationship with God. Look back at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Martin Luther coined a Latin phrase that goes something like this, simul ustus et peccator. As believers, if we have placed our faith totally and completely in nothing else except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are simultaneously righteous and yet still struggle with sin. Righteous is our position. It's our standing before God. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, when we place our faith in him, believe that we are sinful in need of his forgiveness to have everlasting life and to have a relationship with God, he declares us righteous. He doesn't make us righteous. It's a declaration that when he looks upon us, he looks upon what his son did, and he sees righteousness of Jesus, he sees the unrighteousness of sinners, and he declares us righteous based on what God has done for us, not on what we have done for ourselves. We have a righteousness that is not our own being believers. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us. And so if anybody ever tells you is being a Christian is, is looking deep within your heart, trying harder, being a more moral person, they are totally, 100% and completely wrong. That's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is understanding that you are puffed up. You are a prideful, sinful person. Apart from yourself, you deserve nothing but the wrath of God and the condemnation of God. But because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, because of his grace and mercy, he imputes his righteousness to you. Although you are unrighteous in yourself, when you cry out to God, when you believe in him, he gives you his righteousness instead. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Nobody's going to be perfect this side of glory. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin again. Moms in the congregation, we know you've made a lot of mistakes. We know that you've made some sinful blunders, and you will continue to do that in the future. It simply means that you have a passion and a desire to live the rest of your life by faith, that you are righteous, you are declared righteous in God's sight, and now you are living your, your life one step at a time, faithfully in obedience to God. 
we are simultaneously righteous and sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, because of your faith, you have been declared righteous and you have peace with God. Not because of your obedience, not because you can be perfect from this day to the last day until you die. Based on your faith, you have a declaration of righteousness. That's what makes it a free gift. That's what grace is all about. If the gospel is the good news that we believe Jesus, he did his part, now I got to do my part, that's not good news. That's really bad news. Because then I'm going to have to understand, what if I mess up somewhere down the road? How good do I really have to be? What if I get this close but not all the way? Does that mean I'm, I'm still okay? What if on my deathbed I'm still struggling with sinful thoughts? Does that mean I'm not going to go to heaven? No. You're righteous based on what Christ has done for you. It's your position. It's your standing before God. The righteous are the ones who are courageous enough to accept God's word and promise in a world that's dominated by the horrors of Babylon. The righteous in this context are the courageous people that accept God's word and promise in a world that's dominated by the horrors of Babylon. The righteous man will live by faith. That's why it's such a key verse in the New Testament. Number two, true life is measured by reliance. True life is measured by reliance and dependence. Not our own abilities, not our own self-will, self-sufficiency, or self-centeredness. As you read the text of Habakkuk 2, you can't come away without this conclusion. That in order to be righteous, in order to be in this context and live another day, it's not going to come from my own strength. It's not going to come from my military. They've already been annihilated. It's not going to come from my king. He's already a puppet king to the Babylonians and to the Egyptians. It's not going to come because we've got this great military power. It's not going to come because of health care, technology, retirement accounts, it's not going to come because you can take medicines that will lengthen the time of your suffering and enable you to suffer and comfort towards the end of your life. You are totally and utterly and completely dependent upon Christ and God for life, for mercy, and for grace. And as we read Habakkuk chapter 2, the only conclusion that any of us can come away from is how desperately we need the grace of God on a daily basis to live faithfully in a dark and a sinful world. Again, that's dominated by these horrors of pagan nations and godless people. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 is a diamond in the rough. So many of you here at TBC understand that. I'm confident that there's probably somebody in this room that doesn't understand that as well. And if you want to have a life with Christ and have a relationship with him, that will enable you to experience the peace of God, have everlasting life, total joy, complete mercy in your Savior. Here's what Habakkuk is telling us to do. Place your faith in Jesus. Believe in a God who did for you what you cannot do for yourselves. Cry out to him and repent for the wicked sins and the evil aspect of living your life the way that you've wanted to live it, how you've wanted to live it, doing the things that you've wanted to do. When you cry out to God, he becomes the center of your life. All of a sudden, things focus on him now instead of you. Your significance, your identity, your hope is so much stronger based on that.
All right. Let's pray. I want to encourage you to come back. Uh, if you want to read about more woes in Habakkuk, there will be four good ones next week. All right. It's good stuff to deal with. So read the rest of Habakkuk chapter 2. That's where we'll be next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for your love and mercy through Jesus on our behalf. And again, I just want to personally and selfishly take time to thank you for my mom. Thank you for the women who have been a part of my life, my family's life, as motherly figures. Uh, thank you for the legacy that they will always have in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for the difference that they've made in my kids' lives, my marriage, my relationships. God, you are so good to provide us with these ladies that are stalwart, courageous examples for us as they exemplify Jesus, who was never too busy for kids, who loved children. Lord, we thank you for your compassion, for your mercy, the same compassion that we received in the wombs of our mothers, cared for us. You knit us together. Lord, we thank you for all those aspects and all those things that we can look back and say, thank you, Jesus, for great women and for mothers in our lives. I pray that today would just be a huge blessing to them. As we look at this text, help us to wrestle with our pride on a daily basis. Bring us back to center when we get consumed with ourselves. Help us to avoid comparisons, unhealthy competition between other believers, non-believers. Help us to lay all that stuff down and operate on a completely different trajectory of grace and live by what we know is true in the gospel. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.